Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We are so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. I'm not going to ask you to turn to a passage because we're going to go through a lot of chapters this weekend. We're continuing our series entitled In This House, where we're going through our values as a church. Now, I'm preaching two different messages a weekend, one on Saturday night here in Scottsdale and one, a different one in Tempe. I'm going through the nuts and bolts in Tempe, but here in Scottsdale, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking someone that embodies each individual value that God has given us as a church, and, and we're just taking a look at how we can see the value walked out. This weekend, we're taking a look at the life of King David, and the value we're talking about is probably my favorite. It's the value of innocence, and the title of this message is, We Fight for Innocence. In this house, we fight for innocence. If you're taking notes, I'm proud of you. If you're not taking notes, what's wrong with you? There's some great one-liners in this message, but that's not why I want you to take notes. Anytime we adopt a posture of taking notes, we are saying to God, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And you never know when the God of the universe might peer over the balcony of heaven and ring your bell with a word that has nothing to do with the message. So be ready to receive. Are you ready to receive? All right, I'm going to give you nine subpoints. So if you're taking notes, you're going to get writer's cramp in this message, all right? But before we jump into taking a look at the life of David, we need to really talk first about innocence very quickly. Because innocence is not a David thing. Innocence is a God thing, all right? And here's the first thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down about innocence. Innocence was his heart from the beginning. Innocence was God's heart from the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Now the man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, were both naked. That's how we said it in Texas, naked. They were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, if you rewind, remember, this is the first man, the first woman. We're looking at how God originally intended for things to be before sin. This is just before the fall. Adam and Eve are walking around in the presence of God naked. Now, if you rewind about a dozen and a half verses there in Genesis chapter 2, Scripture shows us that when God was giving life to Adam, that God bent down and breathed the breath of life into Adam. Can I point something out that might make some of you squirm a little bit? When God put his face, his breath into Adam, Adam was naked. If you're an eight-year-old boy, here's how you take something like that. Oh, that's disgusting. Why would you say that? Because you've lost a little bit of your innocence. You see, a one-year-old child doesn't gripe to its parent when they expose their nakedness to change their diaper. And in fact, a baby cries until their nakedness is exposed to get that dirty diaper changed. Now, I agree, if you're 25 years old and you're still adopted, that, uh, we, we have counseling and we'd like to meet with you, you are a millennial. That's what you are. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just offended 25% of the group. But you millennials, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of true. You saw that guy on TV earlier this week, 30 years old, living in his parents' house. Don't let that be you, all right? 
Genesis chapter 2, you see man and woman walking around the garden naked. In other words, completely vulnerable with no shame. God intended for us to walk on this earth with innocence. But after the fall, when sin entered the picture, it became a lot more complicated to remain innocent in a fallen world. But make no mistake, innocent, innocence was in God's heart from the start. Here's the second thing you need to know about innocence. Before we start talking about David, we've got to talk about what came before David because he gets a bad rap. We've got to talk about Saul if we're going to talk about innocent David. Here's the second thing. Innocence involves a fierce commitment to stay that way. Innocence involves a fierce commitment to stay that way. Now I'm going to summarize bits of 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 15. One of life's greatest challenges is to live on this earth as innocent as a dove in a fallen world where serpents constantly slither. Another way to say it is it will never be easy to walk upright in a fallen world. David obviously gets a great rap for being an innocent man Someone that God says, this is a man after my own heart. Saul gets a bad rap because we think about the worst parts of Saul. But we forget the fact until we read Saul's story that he actually started out extremely innocent. Remember, when Samuel comes to Saul and says, you are the focus of the hopes of the people of Israel, Saul's immediate response was, there's no way. Not me. I'm the son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. Not me. Not little old me. He had innocence in his heart. After that, when they tried to make him king, do you remember what happened? Everyone says, hey, where, where's Saul? And someone says, he's hiding in the baggage with all the bags. Yet scripture says, that Saul was head and shoulders above every other person and more beautiful than everyone in the land. He had reason to be confident. He had reason to be a little bit corrupt if he took that thing out for a spin, but he was innocent. He was hiding in the bags when they were trying to make him king. They tried to make him king. He wasn't quite king, but he had been identified as the king. And some people in the region said, who is this? that he should rule over us. Saul is unqualified. Saul went back to work, and we see within the next 30 days that Saul is with his oxen plowing his field, and he'd already been identified as king. Now, many of you would say, that doesn't sound like Saul. It was. Before he started taking matters into his own hands, he was a man of innocence. Then the people of Jabesh-Gilead are threatened, and, and they come to, uh, they're threatened by the Ammonites, and they come to Saul and say, will you protect us? Saul says, absolutely, I'll protect you. Saul takes some warriors, they go out, they defeat the Ammonites. After the Ammonites are defeated, a group of people start saying, where are those people who were saying Saul is unqualified? Bring them to us, we're going to kill them. And what does Saul do? Saul says, no, no, no. I didn't give us this victory. 
God did. We're not going to kill them. But some of you are thinking that doesn't sound like Saul. Sure, it doesn't sound like Saul at the end of his life, but this was Saul at the beginning of his story in Scripture. He was a man with an innocent heart. But he didn't stay that way. Little by little, he started to take matters into his own hands. And if you've ever wondered what the opposite of innocence is, it's corruption. And the number one hobby of the corrupt is manipulation. And here's the most simple definition of manipulation I can give you. When man takes matters into his own hands. That's what manipulation is, and that's what Saul began to do. Slowly but surely, he began to embrace this course of corruption through manipulation that ended up leading to his very path of destruction. Innocence requires a fierce commitment to stay that way. While Saul started out innocent, he didn't finish that way. He lost his commitment to protect the innocent heart he had started with when God called him. That leads us to the next thing. Innocence is the perfect response to corruption. Innocence is the perfect response to corruption. God tells the prophet Samuel, I want you to go anoint the next king. I regret ever making Saul king. Things got really bad. He says, I want you to go anoint the new king. Go into the house of Jesse. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. He walks in and he sees Jesse's son, Eliab. And he has this thought. That's the one. Surely this is the one. Because Eliab, it says, was a head taller than everyone else and more beautiful than everybody else. It sounds like Saul 2.0. God looks at Eliab and says to Samuel, no, this is not the one. And this is where the famous line God utters that is such a great calibrator for us to remember as it relates to judging people. God looks at Eliab and says this to Samuel, Though man looks on the outward at appearance, God looks at the heart. And he's speaking of innocence. And Samuel tries several more sons. He goes down the line. I'm sure he had the son that was great at business. Oh, sure, this has got to be the next king. God says, nope, that's not the one. The one who was a great leader, a great team builder. Nope, that's not the one. He goes through all the sons in the room. God says no to everyone. Samuel says, Jesse, is there any other son? Are there any other sons out there? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt. But he's out in the field tending to the sheep and the goats. Notice one of my favorite things about David's story is that it starts when he's off the radar. He's not on anybody's radar. The the local newspaper is not etching in stone or writing on papyrus what he's doing. He is off the radar because innocence is the best response to corruption. Now, Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 10. He speaks to a strategy that I believe is key on the earth in these days. 
He said this, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, when you read that and you know he's speaking to us as disciples, isn't there a part of you that gets a little bit ornery and sarcastic that wants to go, gee, thanks, Jesus. You're sending me like a sheep, an innocent sheep, out into the midst of wolves in a fallen world. Sounds like a horrible strategy. It sounds like he's serving us up on a platter to die. What you will see in this message is God is not serving the innocent up for death. He is actually serving the innocent up to kill corruption. He makes it very clear. Leads us to the next thing. Innocence has no need for manipulation. Innocence has no need for manipulation. Samuel is in the house, going through all the brothers. David is out in the field, doing what he's supposed to do. Somebody in here needs to hear this. Because you have convinced yourself, the only way to receive promotion in your workplace is to get everyone's attention. And you need to be reminded that's not how God does things. God oftentimes loves to take the one off the radar and exalt them, prop them up, graduate them, promote them to a place where he's going to get more glory through them. But in a fallen world, we convince ourselves that we have to play by man's rules. And in a fallen world, man's rules always involve manipulation to get what you want. But that's not how God does it. You see, even though Samuel tried to choose several of Jesse's sons, thinking they were the one, and God said, no, 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 no. God had already chosen David. And even though David wasn't on the radar yet, he had been on God since the beginning. And I know for a fact there are at least a few people in this room who have become so convinced that the only way to receive promotion in this life is manipulation. And I believe maybe the only reason you came this weekend was so that you could hear the Spirit of God speak to your heart and say, that's not how I play. I desire to promote you, but I will not promote you playing by their rules. It doesn't matter that you're not on their radar, you're on mine because I've chosen you and if you'll let me, I'll use you. But your heart's got to be innocent. It's got to be pure. You can't play by their rules. Psalm chapter 37, verse 6, shows us that even if we're covered up by man's eyes, by their own definition, look what God says. God will make your innocence radiate like the dawn. And the justice of your cause, the innocent, will shine like the noonday sun. Listen, you're going to have to start believing that if you're going to start living it. You're going to have to believe that if you do your best to walk in this fallen world with an innocent heart, when everyone else is manipulating to get ahead, you're going to have to honestly and completely believe that God will cause your innocence not your strategy, not your manipulation, not your taking matters into your own hands. He will not cause that to radiate like the dawn, but he will cause your innocence to radiate 
like the dawn. Now, if you think, why keep getting passed over? Seems like nobody notices me. You just need to write this down on your, in your phone or on your notes. That what man notices is rarely what God blesses. Stop taking a look around you everywhere you go, seeing who notices you. Walk with an innocent heart and be confident that as long as you do, not only does God notice you, he is blessing you. He's going to use you. Even if it seems like you are presently being used by people, God has a plan to use you, but you can't play by man's rules. Incidentally, I think David knew. He knew it wasn't time. I love that he was out in the field. I love that he wasn't posturing or politicking. He was being faithful where God had him. Isn't it amazing that everybody else can be in what seems like the perfect position for promotion, but when we are where God has us and we are walking faithfully in an honorable way before the Lord, that we can get beyond where our competitors, they're not your competitors. God says, listen, if you'll just do it my way, you can be out in the field off everybody's radar. I'm not changing my plan for you. You don't change your mode of operation in the meantime. That leads us to the next thing. Innocence only sees one size. Love this part of David's story. Innocence sees one size. When my three children were all younger, they had this crazy notion that daddy was the man. He was bigger, stronger, meaner than any foe. They honestly believed that their father was stronger than every foe. Now, don't you burst their bubble, all right? Because I wear these jackets to hide these guns, all right? That's a crazy thought. But that's what innocent children do. They look at daddy and they say, he's bigger than every enemy. That's the perspective of innocence. Isn't it amazing when we see David encounter Goliath and everyone else is cowering in fear and David stands up, the only one to have the guts at the time. He stands up and hears his thought process and he says this, my word, I've seen what God can do to a lion. I've seen what my God has done to a bear. Who are you? Here's what he was saying. You're all the same size to my God. Well, Preston, what size is that? Beatable. They're all beatable. You know you've become a little corrupt when you are more intimidated by the shadow one man casts on the earth as opposed to Remembering that your God stands above the circle of the entire earth. 
David innocently said, you're just like a bear, bro. Everyone else is so afraid of you. But every one of my opponents is the same size to God, beatable. You're all beatable. Well, Preston, you don't know how big the obstacle I'm facing really is. I don't need to. I know its size, and I know the size of your God. The size of the obstacle, overcomable. The size of your enemy, beatable. The size of your need, never insurmountable. But if you look at your need, if you look at your enemy, if you look at your obstacle, eventually you will begin to see those things look so large that, that the size of your God begins to look so small. But innocence fights to keep the perspective that says every one of my enemies is tiny compared to my father. I want to be like my children when they were five and six years old. They weren't afraid of anything because they thought their daddy could take care of everything. That's how innocence rolls. Why does the Bible say perfect love casts out all fear? Because God is love. Because your heavenly father is bigger than every one of your foes. And listen, if I'm your friend and you sit down with me and you're consistently talking about how big your obstacles are, how big your needs are, how big your enemies are, I'm going to shoot straight with you. You have lost some of your innocence. And you have started to measure your life using man's calculator, not God's. Innocence only sees one size. David wrote this in Psalm 113, verse 4, 5, and 6. For the Lord is high above the nations. His glory is higher than the heavens. Who can be compared with the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? He stoops to look down on heaven and earth. David learned, my God's huge. And I'm never going to become so old that I think I'm big. You see, when we're this small, we think everybody is big. Why is it that when we become this big, we start to think God is small? When we were this big and God was huge. Because we start to lose some of our innocence. We ask God for things that don't happen. We walk through pain we didn't ask for. And we begin to believe the lie that God is smaller than he actually is. David is a wonderful model who reminds us every enemy is small compared to our God. Innocence only sees one size. Leads us to the next thing. Innocence does not see being vulnerable as being uncomfortable. Be ready to squirm a little bit. Innocence does not see being vulnerable as being uncomfortable. Fast track to when David and Jonathan meet. Jonathan is Saul's son, the king's son. He is the rightful heir to the throne. But David is going to be the next king, and Jonathan knows it. It's the perfect situation for there to be enmity, for Jonathan to come after David, to remove David, because David represented his highest level of competition. Not only does Jonathan not do that, 
Jonathan, at the beginning of their story together, takes off his robe, takes off his tunic, and all of his weapons, and he enacts a pact with David. He makes a promise to David. And the Bible says the two of them loved one another. That Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Now, I've heard some pastors get way wonky in teaching on this. I mean, they take it so far that they use it as justification for sin. Want to know my perspective? When we have innocent hearts, we can see Adam and Eve naked in the garden in the presence of the Lord and not go, ooh. When we see Jonathan disrobe and symbolically saying to David, I'm hiding nothing. I have nothing to hide. I'm going to be completely vulnerable with you. I'm not going to operate as the king's son. I'm going to operate as your best friend. Pure of heart, I'm innocent. I have no agenda, David. That's what he was representing. You see, someone could be hiding a knife beneath their robe. He took everything off, as humiliating as that was, so as to say, I got nothing to hide. You see, innocence never has anything to hide. Only the corrupt do. Only the corrupt are afraid the lights will come on. But even when innocence has messed up, innocence is not afraid of the lights because the lights are where safety is. Darkness is where trouble is found. Jonathan strips off and he says, I can't explain what God has done. But I love you like I love myself. You're my best friend. And I'm going to be completely vulnerable with you. Did you know that one of the biggest keys to every healthy relationship is vulnerability? Isn't it amazing that God set it up for marriage to be, to involve the most intimate physical act that involves showing all of our warts, all of our scars, all of our least favorite parts of us. Why? I believe it's one of the ways God reminds us that relationship cannot survive without vulnerability. But listen to me closely. Vulnerability will always be impossible without innocence. We have to have innocent hearts or we will never have the courage to be vulnerable. That leads us to the next thing. Innocence is a master of reception. Innocence is a master of reception. Corruption is a master of deception. But innocence is a master of reception. Saul is now very jealous of David. He is taken 3,000 elite troops to chase David into the hills of Engedi. And wouldn't you know it, as they are chasing David to kill him, Saul has to relieve himself. And Saul hikes up into a cave to have a little bit of privacy. And the Bible tells us that this is the very cave where David and his men were hiding out. What are the odds of that? Think about that for a moment. What are the odds of that? If Vegas were laying odds on that, they wouldn't. They'd be so high. That's almost impossible. 
unless God is involved. God was setting David up. Here's one of the things you'll learn if you're going to commit to a fight, to having a very, very fierce commitment to be innocent. You have to understand your innocence is always going to be tested. It's going to be tested by people. It's even going to be tested by God. God doesn't test us to fail us. He tests us to promote us. You can look at it one of two ways. That God was setting David up to fail. I don't see it that way. I believe God was setting David up for serious promotion in that cave. Saul comes in to go to the bathroom. David's men in the back of the cave are all whispering, going, this is it. Man, this is it. You got to kill him. Let's do this thing. God is handing your enemy over to you. Go kill him. David goes over to Saul, sneaks up. He's a very, very trained warrior. David was the man. He sneaks up on Saul. But he doesn't kill him. He cuts off the corner of his robe. And I want you to see what happens as David turns to go back to his boys who are all saying, this is your moment, kill him. In other words, take matters into your own hands and listen to what scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse five, happens with David. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. What do we learn here? Corruption loves to take matters into its own hands, whereas innocence is content to leave everything in God's hands. David does this time and time again. His son Absalom later on steals the kingdom away from him. And David's leadership says to him, you can't let this happen. And David's response is simple and innocent. And he says, if this is what God wants, then let him have it. But if God wants me to be king, he will give the kingdom back to me. But I will not fight and kill innocent people just to prove it belongs to me. I'm content to leave things in God's hands. One more thing I want to give you. It's the last of all the things I want to point out. There's so many other things, but this is really the biggie because when we talk about innocence, most people actually believe that innocence is equal to perfection. That you're only innocent if you're perfect. If you're completely without sin, which that's none of us. But the devil has many of us convinced that innocence is equal to perfection. And here's what I want you to understand. Innocence is not perfection. None of us are perfect. Isn't it interesting that the one person in Scripture of whom God says, this is a man after my own heart, was a man who fell in adultery? That's hope for those of us who have screwed up. And listen to me closely. If you're thinking, well, that's really good news for my spouse 
or my friend because they've really screwed up. So have you. So have I. This is hope for us that innocence is not equal to perfection. Innocence is a posture. It's not perfection. David wasn't perfect. He screwed up. And listen to what he says in Psalm 51, the psalm he writes after he falls in sin with Bathsheba. He says, God, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. Renew. Not give it to me for the first time. I used to have an innocent heart, and I screwed up, God. Would you renew my innocent heart? Cast me not away from your presence, God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. See, here's why I believe the devil is fighting to convince every believer that they've lost their innocence. Because the second you start beating yourself up because of your mistakes and your sins, you distance yourself from God. I distance myself from God because we're ashamed, we're embarrassed. So of course the devil would try and convince us that we've lost our innocence and we can never get it back. Can I tell you something? I've seen God restore innocence. When I was a boy, I saw something that I never wanted to see. I didn't try to see it. I wasn't looking to see it. I saw someone's nakedness, and it scared me. I couldn't get the image out of my head. I'd fall asleep at night, and that's all I could see. I'd go to church. My dad would be playing at the piano, leading our church in worship, and all I could see was nakedness. I beat myself up. I had total shame, couldn't look people in the eyes. And I remember laying in bed one night, saying to God, God, I've had bad dreams before where you made it, where it was like I couldn't even remember my dream. Have you ever had that before? You had a bad dream and then two weeks later you can't even remember what it was? I said, God, would you cause this moment in my life to be like one of those dreams that I can't remember even if I try? God, I don't want to see that anymore. And I don't know how to explain it. But it was as though God took the etch-a-sketch of my mind and my memory. And he just went like this and he wiped it clean. Listen to me. I know there's some people here. You've temporarily lost your innocence. Maybe you did something a long time ago and you've never told anyone, but you beat yourself up every day. You convince yourself that you're dirty, unusable, unlovable because you lost your innocence and it was your fault can I tell you God wants to restore your innocence today but I also know there are others who've had their innocence stolen from them and I want you to know that I believe today 
Today is the beginning of you getting it back. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.